What's up? It is I, Jonathan Smith, your host here at Shooting the Schmidt. We have a great podcast in store for you today. We're wrapping up the NBA Finals. This is the first podcast I've done since the Warriors claimed the title. We're talking NBA draft. Cannot wait to do it. And then finally, finally, we are wrapping up with a Father's Day-themed segment that I just cannot wait to get to. But first, Double B, Bruce Buffer. Thank you, Bruce. I get to take my victory lap. I wanted ZG on, but he is got some other stuff going on right now, so he couldn't come here to watch me boast as I claim my rightness on the NBA Finals. I took Golden State in seven. They ended up getting it done in six. And if you heard ZG and I talk about just the NBA Finals as a whole, we definitely put off this idea that the Boston Celtics were the better team. And look, I'm willing to say I was wrong on that, right? Like, you know, I was fully expecting Golden State to win this game because they had been here. And, you know, that's part of why they won, right? The experience definitely played a huge huge factor just in everything in the way that Golden State closed games and in the way that Boston did not close games. But at the end of the day, when you win two games on the road like Golden State did and you win it in six, I mean, I think that you have to admit that the better team won there, right? And now, with that being said, Boston was definitely the more talented team. I'm excited to kind of talk about their future here in a minute. But first, I want to give the Warriors their flowers because coming into the playoffs, not a lot of people believed in them. A lot of people picked Memphis. A lot of people picked Boston. Boston was the favorite in Las Vegas. And, man, this Golden State Warriors team just continues to win. Steph Curry gets the long-awaited finals MVP that he deserved in the first title that they won that Andre Iguodala took from him, maybe not took from him, that, you know, the voters or whatever gave to Iguodala, even though if you watch that series, it was all Steph. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was six years ago now or whatever it was, seven years ago. But, yeah, so long waited for him. It's been so great just to see him. And it's really just nice seeing these guys stick together, not having superstars leave to go, you know, other places and do other things like that. Now, one of the big questions that has now been opened up for people like me to talk about is, does this put Steph Curry in the top 10 all-time list? I know for me, like he does, here's just a quick synopsis of his resume. Eight-time All-NBA, four-time NBA champ, finally has that finals MVP, like I mentioned. The best three-point shooter we have ever seen. Did it before and after Kevin Durant. And most importantly, I think the biggest thing on his resume, despite everything I just listed, is how he changed the way that we're going to play basketball for forever. I mean, like, centers don't exist anymore because of Steph Curry. The importance of shooting the basketball doesn't is more prominent than ever because of Steph Curry and what he does, right? And if you go to AAU tournaments and you do whatever, there's so many people out there trying to play like Steph Curry. And I think that it's a more attainable thing to grab onto in terms of improving your ability to shoot, whereas not everybody can be as as athletic as LeBron James, but everybody can learn to shoot. Maybe not like Steph Curry, but that's an easier thing to chase. It's easier for people to learn how to do. 
So here's my updated top 10 all-time. It's a little controversial, but that's okay. That's, that's how we like to be over here on this show. So number one, Michael Jordan, the GOAT. Number two, LeBron. Number three, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Number four, Magic Johnson. Number five, Wilt Chamberlain. Number six, Larry Bird. Seven, Tim Duncan. Eight, Steph Curry. Nine, Kobe Bryant. And number 10, Bill Russell. Now, I think people are going to have a problem with me putting him in front of Kobe Bryant, who is, you know, obviously one of the greatest basketball players ever, right? Like, I have him at ninth all time, five championships. Like, that's, you know, the big thing with him. He's got the five rings. It was great on both ends of the floor. And so if you want to make the argument for Kobe over Steph, I would say you're probably going to point to one of two things. The first thing you're probably going to point to is how great Kobe Bryant was defensively, and there's no denying that like Kobe Bryant was the best two-guard defender in the NBA for a long time. And so like if you want to point to that and be like, Steph Curry, nowhere near as good defensively as Kobe Bryant, I will not argue with you. But at the end of the day, when we look at the way Steph Curry changed basketball, I think that greatly outweighs what Kobe Bryant did whereas he was just, you know, a copy of Michael Jordan, right? And so I think in that regard, Steph definitely gets the nod. And, you know, let's be honest here. Like, when we're talking about guys and, you know, their impact on basketball and legacy and all those other kinds of things, like, it's mostly offense, okay? Like, we can sit here and act all high and mighty about how important defense is and how much we love defense, You know, and that's why everybody picked Boston because it's like we love defense and Boston's defense is great. And this guy plays great defense, so I want him. No, give me the greatest shooter ever over a really, really good defender any other, every day of the week, every day of the week. And then the other argument you're going to point to is Kobe Bryant has more championships than Steph Curry, which is another fact. But here's the difference for me. If you look at Kobe Bryant's first two championships, he had the most dominant player ever on his team. He was not the best player on both of those championship teams. More importantly, those Laker teams were not his. Those were Shaquille O'Neal's teams, especially the first one where Kobe Bryant shot the exact same percentage from the floor in that first finals that he won alongside Shaq as Jason Tatum did in this NBA finals. And we know how terrible Jason Tatum was in this NBA finals. They both shot 36.5% from the floor in their first finals appearances. So with all that kind of being considered, I give Steph Curry the nod over Kobe Bryant. It's only one spot. If you have that big of a problem with it, I don't really know what to tell you. Now let's get into what's next for Boston. So look, you have to wonder, did Boston miss, you know, a golden opportunity? Milwaukee's going to be back next year with a hopefully healthy Chris Middleton. And when the Bucs are healthy, they're just really tough to beat, especially for a team like Boston. But, you know, with that being said, Celtics, the core is really young, right? Jason Tatum, 24. Jalen Brown, 25. Marcus Smart, 28. They're still very much in their championship window. They just had to find the right pieces to put around those three guys. You know, Robert Williams is obviously a great piece for that. Grant Williams is another really good piece for that. It's just finding, you know, the rest of the supporting cast to bring alongside those guys. I'd like to see them go and get, you know, just a veteran guard who can kind of help settle them down, and kind of get them in their offense whenever they're struggling to score. I think that would have been really, really helpful for them to have in this finals against Golden State if they had, you know, like a Derek Fisher when Derek Fisher was playing, you know, later on in his career. Just a guy to come in, settle down the offense, get Jason Tatum the ball in his spot, and let him go to work from there. Like I said, I think they really miss kind of that calming 
veteran presence. And the other thing, though, that we have to keep in mind is when you go on runs like this, you attract free agents. Okay, Boston was already attracting free agents because they're Boston, right? But now, with the success that they've had with these young guys, there's going to be veterans, you know, on their fourth and fifth contracts looking to move to a team where they can potentially win a ring. And that's Boston, right? You know, people have kind of talked about this with Dallas. You know, like, they kind of saw what Luka did, and they're like, okay, like, I can go there, and I can win a ring. People are going to do the exact same thing with Boston. They're going to look at what Jason Tatum and what Jalen Brown and what Marcus Smart did, and they're going to say, you know what? I can go there, and I can win a ring. So, you know, that that helps. I'm very interested to see kind of what they look like next year. You know, Miami's going to come back. They're hopefully going to make some improvements. You know, there's a lot of talk of them going to get Donovan Mitchell. You know, if Miami goes and gets Donovan Mitchell— they're probably better than Boston next year. Milwaukee is better than Boston next year. Who knows what's happening in Brooklyn, but if they re-sign Kyrie, you can make the argument that with Ben Simmons, they give Boston a run for their money. Still don't know if I'm ready quite yet to commit to Brooklyn being better than Boston, especially after what happened in the playoffs this year. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk the Nets and Kyrie Irving and just kind of everything going on with them. And then we'll move into the NBA draft from there. So we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with more Shooting the Schmidt. And we're back with more Shooting the Schmidt. Before I get into the NBA draft and a lot of the prospects that are declaring for the draft, and we'll hear their names called on Thursday night, I want to do this quick thing on the Nets and Kyrie Irving. Because today, according to The Athletic, the Nets and Kyrie, there's some problems with the extension and there's a possibility that Kyrie's going to hit the open market. And before I do the Kyrie thing, because anytime you talk about Kyrie and the Nets now, everybody has to make the comment about Kevin Durant, you know, left Golden State and all that. And my thing is, Kevin Durant isn't stupid for leaving Steph Curry. I think he needed to do it just simply, not only for himself, and just so that he could know that he can do it on his own, but also just like for the legacy standpoint, because Kevin Durant cares about his legacy. I don't care what he says. He really cares about it because if he didn't care about it, then he would have stayed in Golden State. And he's not stupid for leaving Stephen Curry. He's stupid for choosing Kyrie. There are plenty of other superstars that Kevin Durant could have tied his his ship to, but he's stuck with Kyrie, and now there's all this crap that's going on. So here we go. I Who knows? I just This whole thing is just crazy to me, right? Like I feel like the entire basketball season, all I've talked about is Brooklyn and and all the bull crap that's going on there. So who knows what what Brooklyn's going to do, right? Um, You know, if Kyrie opts out and decides to test free agency, they're not going to get anything in return for Kyrie, and then their only options is to, to like, at least stay interesting would be to go and get Zach Levine or Bradley Beal if Bradley Beal chooses to not opt into his new deal. Either way, if Kyrie opts out, Kevin Durant and the Nets are screwed. I don't know what they're going to do. Even though I think Zach Levine would be a lot of fun, I don't think that they would be as good. You know, if Kyrie ends up in L.A., then obviously the Lakers become legit contenders. I just, I don't know what's going to happen. It's just, it's a total madhouse up there. And Kyrie Irving is just, there's just, there's so many layers to this, right? Because there's part of me that's thinking about the Kevin Durant side of this. And if Kevin Durant wants Kyrie Irving in Brooklyn, then you would think that Brooklyn has to figure it out with Kyrie, right? But at the same time, they have Kevin Durant under contract for the next four years. So if they don't want Kyrie in Brooklyn, if they're tired of the headache, they can be like, look, Kevin, we got you under contract until the end of your career. So you can either play and, you know, we can try to figure this thing out with Ben Simmons, 
Or, you know, you can force your way out. We'll trade you for, you know, whatever. And Or we won't trade you. You can just sit on the bench for the next four years. I mean, it's just, who knows what Brooklyn's going to do. It's just, it's a total madhouse up there. It's giving me a headache just thinking about it. So I'm going to move on to the NBA draft. And I'm not going to do a mock draft. I think mock drafts are kind of dumb, especially when you're me and you don't have any reliable sources on any of these teams. So instead of doing that, I'm just going to tell you who I think are the best players, you know, that are going to go in the lottery this year. So I've broken this up into three tiers, right? So tier one, we have the big three. We'll start with Chet Holmgren, the the quote-unquote unicorn in the draft. And look, anytime there's a seven-footer who can shoot and kind of dribble, everyone's like, he's a unicorn. He's the next Kevin Durant. He's this. He's going to be great. You know, and I'll be honest, I'm not sold on Chet having a career worthy of being a number one overall pick. Okay, I think at his best, I think he competes to be def- to be defensive player of the year. And I think offensively, he averages 15 to 18 points per game. You know, this puts him in a category of a really good player, right? Not a superstar. And if I'm taking someone number one overall, and they they have to have superstar potential, and I just don't think that Chet has that, okay? And also, he's going to have to stay healthy. When you look at the history of the NBA, you cannot name one player who has had the same build as Chet Holmgren and has stayed healthy throughout his entire career, all right? Like, the most recent guy would be Porzingis. He's not very good, and he's also hurt all the time. And on top of that, I think in order for Chet to really be effective, especially defensively, he's got to put some weight on. And there's just a lot of things that I think have to go right in order for Chet Holmgren to be everything that everybody is saying that he can be. So with that, moving on to Jabari Smith. Actually, one more thing on Chet. I would take him third. I would not take him number one. I would not take him number two. If I'm Houston, I would grab him at three. Jabari Smith, the shooter of the draft. Smith, six foot ten with a golden stroke. Okay, he can shoot over defenders. That's what he did at Auburn. And he's shown some explosiveness. I've watched him a lot this last year. Really, really impressed with him. The problem with him right now is that he currently lacks the handle to be a primary ball handler in an offense, which is okay. You know, there's value in being able to play off the ball. But there's this is the same thing here. Like, it's really hard for you to be a dynamic superstar that's worthy of being taken number one overall if you can't handle the ball and you can't be the primary initiator of an offense. Now, with that being said, like, the kid's 19, okay? There's plenty of time for him to develop. But I just think it's very rare that we see guys go from little ball handling ability to all of a sudden being just an elite ball handler. I just, that's not a very common thing. I can't think of anybody that like we've seen that from. So here is my comp for him. I think he's going to be really similar to Jalen Brown by the end of his career. Okay. If we look at Jalen Brown right now, Brown is currently just like a two-dribble guy on offense, right? Like, he's got two moves, and if he gets to a third, things don't go very well. That's kind of where I see Jabari Smith ending up, and you can be a great option on offense if you can get to that point. And that's where I think Smith's going to finish at. Now, if he can progress past that, which is very possible, he's a very talented player, then he'll, he'll be a superstar with his ability to shoot the ball, and if he can handle the ball extremely well and go by guys, I mean, he'll be incredible, right? I, I think he's 
more than worthy of the number one overall pick. But with that being said, I would not take him number one. I would take Paulo Bancaro because Paulo Bancaro, he is him. Like, he, he is him right now for me. You know, Paulo is currently the best player in this class. He is the most NBA-ready player. And by the time it's all said and done, he's going to be the best player in this class. He's six foot ten, like Jabari Smith. So he can shoot over defenders. He's also 250 pounds. I mean, so he can punish these smaller defenders on the inside, okay? Currently, like today, he can initiate an offense because of his ability to handle the basketball. That's what he did at Duke last year. He would bring the ball up the floor, and, you know, he's just, there's just so many different things you can do with him. That, that's, I think that's why I like him so much. Because he's 6'10", 250, he can set screens and be a monster in the short roll with his ability to finish around the rim. Uh, he's he passes the ball extremely well. He's got great feel for the game. So he he can, you know, dish out of the, that short roll spot. Like I said, he can initiate your offense and run screen and roll as the ball handler as well. At 6'10", 250 pounds. Now, there are obviously some concerns with him. Otherwise, everybody would have him at the top of their draft boards like I do. Here, here are the concerns. He didn't play a lot of defense at Duke, but he possesses the size and the athletic ability to defend in the NBA, okay? Like, you just have to get him to care, okay? And the other thing that people are kind of knocking him on is how inconsistent his jump shot is, but the mechanics look good. Like, his jump shot doesn't look broken. He just needs more reps, and I think he'll end up being a good shooter, and like I said, you're not working, you know, from the ground up. Like, there's a foundation there already. He just needs more reps, And the other thing that people are talking about is his shot selection. But when you're the best player on the floor in college, you you can get away with taking some bad shots. When you get into the NBA and you're playing with other guys who can really, truly score, you're not going to take as many bad shots because you're going to get better looks. There's going to be more spacing. So I think his shooting efficiency will improve with that. I think that at his peak, he's a top eight player in the NBA who is more than capable of being the best player on a championship team. And if I'm drafting number one, these are the kind of guys that I'm taking swings on. That's just how I am. So, once again, uh, I think pa- Paulo Beccaro is the best player in this draft. I think Jabari Smith should go second, and Chet Holmgren should go third to the Rockets. Moving on to Tier 2, I only have two guys here in this category. For me, the drop-off is at four. But this Tier 2, we're going to call them the wild cards, right? You have Jaden Ivey, who, being here in Indianapolis... And having, you know, you know Purdue being an hour away, I have watched a lot of Jaden Ivey this year. You know, Matt Murphy, who's come on the pod, has, has talked about Jaden Ivey. You know, me and him, have, you know, we've watched a lot of Purdue basketball. And Jaden Ivey is insanely athletic, but his speed sometimes, I think, costs him, right? Where he's moving at a million miles an hour, so he winds up making some bad turnovers. His jump shot is inconsistent. But look, we often see guys improve their jump shot in the NBA. So I'm not too, too worried about that. But for me, like, Jaden Ivey is the true definition of a wild card, okay? Like, there are two ends of the spectrum. I don't think he lands anywhere in the middle. He's going to be one of two people, okay? At the high end, he's going to be like a top 20 player. He's going to be really, really good, really, really explosive, Donovan Mitchell kind of guy, great scorer with some playmaking ability. Or he's going to end up like Dennis Smith Jr., a super explosive guy who's out of the league within five years, and everyone's like, how did this guy not work? Like, he had all, all the athleticism in the world. How did this guy not make it in the NBA? Like, like what, what happened, right? 
I've, it's one of those two. Spe- it's, it's one of those two, you know, outcomes for him. I don't know which one it's going to be, but the upside is so high. You know, if you're Sacramento, I don't know if you take him. I talked about you know Sacramento trading the fourth pick, you know, a, a few weeks ago. So you know, I don't know if you take him. I don't know what you do if you're Sacramento, but Jaden Ivey, high upside, but could also you know be falling off a cliff if you take him. Next, we have Shane Sharp, who I've labeled as the invisible one. Haven't seen him play outside of his highlights on YouTube. Was the number one overall high school high school prospect. This guy's supposed to be a scoring machine. You know, he's like six four and a half, something like that. Can shoot, can handle the basketball. You know, he's athletic, so he can finish above the rim. Possesses the length and athleticism to be a good defender. Everything about him looks great. I just haven't seen it. So it's really hard for me to have a legit opinion on him. So I don't know where he's going to end up at. You know, he could go, you know, fourth to Sacramento, and I wouldn't be surprised. Or he could go, you know, 15th to Charlotte, and I wouldn't be surprised. I I don't really know what's going to happen with him. Like I said, everything about him looks great. Everything I've read seems great. I just haven't seen it. So once again, it's hard for me to have an opinion on the type of player that he's going to be when he plays in the NBA. Moving on to my third and final tier here. These are just the the good guys, right? Like this is a really deep draft class. There's a lot of guys in the lottery who possess the skills to help a basketball team. So starting off with Keegan Murray, who's probably going to go, who I think is going to go after Sharp and uh, Ivy. Keegan Murray, Mr. Consistent at Iowa, just did a lot of, just has like a very well-rounded game, can score inside, can score outside. Isn't going to be, you know, the number one scoring option on any team, but is a more than capable scorer and defender. Should play in the NBA for, you know, 10 or 15 years, you know, averaging somewhere between like 15 and 17 points a night with like seven rebounds and a few assists. Just a really solid all-around basketball player. Moving on to Dyson Daniels, the only G League Ignite player I have in any of these three tiers. I've labeled him the passer, guy from Australia who is very, very well known for his ability to move the ball. The problem is he can't shoot at all, okay? Like he, you know, has great length and great size. He's 6'6", tall, long. The, the thing, though, is he just he really can't shoot the ball. Like it's bad. Only shot 25% from three in the G League this last year. Only 74% from the free throw line. Just wasn't great. I, But at the same time, you know, pe- people seem to like him. A guy who can move the ball. A guy who can affect the game without having the ball in his hands with his defense and the other things that he does. Right? Moving on. Next here in Tier 3, I've got... Whoa, my notes just disappeared on me. I got, I got to pull those back up. What in the world here? All right, I am almost back. But yeah, Dyson Daniels, you know, the passer. We'll we'll see what he ends up looking like in the NBA in terms of his ability to play make. Next up, we got Benedict Benedict Matherin, a.k.a. the heat check out of Arizona. You know, another guy, tall, long, you know, 6'5", can score, can really shoot the ball, shot 41% on catch-and-shoot threes his freshman year. Was asked to do a little bit more offensively this last year at Arizona, so that... Dropped to 38% of his catch-and-shoot threes, which is still really, really good. Okay, he can heat up quickly. You know, he possesses the length and athleticism, you know, to defend. So this is a, you know, at his, you know, lowest level, he is a really good 3 and D player in the NBA. And, you know, if you watch NBA basketball, 
that is what it's all about. You know, having your one or two superstars and a bunch of guys who can shoot and play great defense. Moving on to my next guy here. We've got A.J. Griffin, the bucket getter out of Duke. And this dude can just score in so many different ways. One of the more talented scorers in this draft shot 48% from three at Duke. So you know this guy's going to be able to come in and shoot the ball, but also kind of has some Jalen Brunson to his game in terms of his ability to use different pump fakes and pass fakes to get open, right? Like he's not an overly, like he's not an overwhelming athlete, but, you know, is just kind of quirky in the way that he scores. So he's able to score in multiple ways. There is some injury concern. You know, he's had some some leg injuries, you know, these past couple of years that have held him out of Duke games and, and out of some high school games. Next, Jalen Duran, the fly swatter out of Memphis. This guy has everything you need to be a rim runner and protect the rim. You know, he does a really good job of, you know, playing help defense, right? He's also skilled in terms of his ability to finish around the bucket when he does get it in deep offensively. But, you know, this is going to be a Robert Williams kind of guy, you know, dunk the ball, set good screens, and protect the rim. I've got two more here. I got Johnny Davis next, the solid one that I've been calling him. Just, you know, a really solid player uh, who can score, you know, in multiple ways. Not a great three-point shooter, more of a mid-range guy, but, you know, over his time in the NBA, I do think he will extend his range. He only shot 33% from three this last year. Um, But, you know, average 20 20 points and eight rebounds. And rebounding is one of those things that usually transfers to the NBA once again, this is another guy who's tall and long, 6'5", so he's projects to be a good defender as well with his athleticism. And then the last guy I have here, Mark Williams, the center from Duke. Another guy, kind of like Jalen Duran, right? You know, tall, long, athletic, block shots, rebound, set screens, and dunk the ball. Like, that's what he's going to do. You know, having guys like that or you know, really important, right? Like we saw how important, you know, Kevon Looney was. We saw how important, you know, Robert Williams was for the Celtics this year. So having those centers who can rim run and protect the rim are extremely important in this day and age of basketball. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to finish it up with a brand new segment that I cannot wait to do in honor of Father's Day. Who's your daddy? Coming up next after this short break. Who's your daddy, Gary? Who's your daddy? You. Uh-huh. And whose team is this? Is this your team? Or is this your daddy's team? Yours. Who's your daddy? Coming at you live. Cannot wait to do this. I had this idea the other day and was just so excited to do it. So here is basically the premise. So in honor, in honor, of Father's Day, I'm recording this on Monday, so it's the day after Father's Day. In honor of Father's Day, I wanted to go back and look at players throughout sports history. You know, some of its recent history, some of it's a little bit further back, and just admire some of their fathers, some of their daddies. So without further ado, who's your daddy? Let's get into it. So when I was doing this, you know, kind of prepping for it, there was one that immediately leaped into my mind, and that is Eli Manning is Tom Brady's daddy. Eli beat him twice in two unforgettable Super Bowls, one that included a helmet catch that spoiled Tom's run at a perfect season. Now, I would be remiss to not mention that Tom Brady 
is the entire AFC East, East daddy. Okay, Tom Brady has combined 90 and 22 against the AFC East for his career. Okay, he terrorized that division during his time in New England, and I would know as a Miami Dolphins fan, even though you know the Dolphins beat the Patriots more than the Bills and the Jets did during that run, but it didn't matter. Tom Brady owned us. He owns the AFC East to this day. And speaking of owning teams and divisions, Aaron Rodgers is the Chicago Bears' daddy. Aaron Rodgers is 22-5 and all-time against the Chicago Bears. So yes, Bear fans, he still owns you, just like he said after he scored the touchdown against y'all this last year. The next one, the coin toss is Josh Allen's daddy. That little coin flip potentially costed Josh Allen a shot at the AFC title game after losing the coin toss to to the Kansas City Chiefs in this last year's AFC divisional matchup. Man, could you imagine, like, if, you know, Josh Allen just never wins a Super Bowl? He's just going to think about that coin toss for forever. Okay, moving on to to college football. Nick Saban is his entire coaching tree's daddy. Okay, before this year, he had never lost a game to his former assistants. Of course, now, you know, he's a measly 25-2 and against his former assistants after losing to Jimbo Fisher and Kirby Smart this last year. The next one, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. Not not super in-depth, but this guy's already been mentioned. The number of rings argument is LeBron James's daddy. Four and six all-time in the NBA Finals. Non-LeBron fans and people 20 years from now won't care about the injuries or who they played or how he played or anything. They're just going to look at that record and be like, bro, you went four and six, and you're trying to tell me that, that you're the best player ever? It's, it's tough for the kink, but he'll always be that argument son. Michael Jordan is Patrick Ewing's daddy. M- Michael Jordan was the hump that Patrick Ewing just couldn't get over in his career. Michael Jordan hit the game-winning shot in the 1982 NCAA title game to beat Patrick Ewing. When Ewing was with the Knicks, they lost to Michael Jordan and the Bulls all five times that they played against each other in the playoffs. And one more, I I had to do a baseball one just because I I felt bad for baseball because it wasn't in here. Dennis Martinez was Barry Bonds' daddy. Barry Bonds is arguably the greatest hitter in the history of baseball. When he's not facing Dennis Martinez against Martinez, Bonds flat out sucked. He only hit 228 with a 337 slugging percentage in 100 plate appearances. The home run king only hit one home run in in those plate appearances and only had eight extra base hits. So that's going to do it here at Shooting the Shmeet. W- wanted to end the, the podcast on, on a positive note there. Hope you enjoyed the segment. I hope it gave you some laughs. I hope it didn't upset you too much, especially if you're a LeBron guy. That's going to do it here at Shooting the Schmidt. Probably going to drop another podcast on Friday, kind of recapping the draft Thursday night right after it happens. So I'll be back again on Friday with another take for you.